Uh, we are reading from Matthew 4, 23 uh, through 5, 13. You guys want to stand with me? Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news in the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and, brought, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, sir. And feel free to be seated. As you do, I'm just going to pray over us. So join me, Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son, Jesus. And then, Father and Son, thank you for breathing out your Holy Spirit so that we can be your family, so that we can become more like Jesus, children of the Father in heaven. So would you keep breathing on us, God? Keep breathing your Holy Spirit out and empower your church to hear your voice and respond faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, if you're new or visiting, welcome to Park Hill Church. My name is Evan, and my wife Sandy and I, Sandy's the woman that was singing with me up here, she and I uh, lead this church together and alongside a team, and it's great. So we love you, and we're thankful that you're here. Um, today is the final teaching of the series, God Breathed. Last teaching. So the goal of this series has been to remember what it means to read and trust this thing called the Bible, because Jesus trusted his Bible. He read the Old Testament, we call it the Old Testament, he just called it the Law and the Prophets, the Hebrew Scriptures, and he trusted it, and so we trust it, and we trust the New Testament that Jesus' first followers wrote. So what we've looked at during this series, where the Bible came from, because you gotta know where something comes from to trust it, right? And, and why it can be trusted to lead us to Jesus, and how science and the Bible should never conflict because they address totally different questions. And we've looked at how the Bible is both human literature and uniquely alive by the Holy Spirit of God. And, and so all of this has been leading to what it means to be Bible-shaped, which just means Jesus-shaped, as we read the scriptures together prayerfully and honestly in an environment where questions and doubts and joys can all be shared freely and submitted to the Holy Spirit as we read together. So this is what this has all been heading to. So last week... And this week are kind of part one and two of the finale of the series, where we discover that the Bible is designed to be a book that reads us. We don't just read it, the Bible reads us. As we read the Bible with both the living and dead church. 
And by dead church, I mean 2,000 years of Holy Spirit-filled Bible readers who have passed on to be with God. We have their readings, we have their writings, and we read together with them too, just like we read with living Bible readers together in community. It's beautiful what we're a part of. And when we do this, reading Bible becomes Bible reading us and changing us. So that's what this is all for. And so here's... Here's, what, here's how the church talks about it. The church calls the word of God a means of grace. This is why. Because the Bible is one of God's appointed instruments by which the Holy Spirit enables believers to receive the presence and power of Jesus in our lives. The Bible is an, is an instrument that God uses to present us Jesus, <laughs> like to encounter the Son of God. And, and another means of grace is communion, bread and cup. And another means of grace is baptism, and another one is prayer together. All over the world, the whole church relies on those things as a way of gathering and, and hosting God's presence. And right in the middle of it all is the scriptures, okay? So I can't think of a better way to end this series than to camp out on Jesus' most famous scripture teaching, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. How many of you heard the Sermon on the Mount? Yeah, it's a famous part of the Jesus story. So why the Sermon on the Mount? Because remember, the Bible is meditation literature, meaning it's intentionally designed to be reread and reread by Jesus' followers. And when you do that, you start to see connections. You start to see the way words connect with each other and what the authors are thinking and doing as the Holy Spirit works the character of Jesus into us. And one of the most amazing places to see this, all these connections come together is the opening lines of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' intro. So out of Jesus' heart comes this teaching, the sermon. It's really revealing his kingdom culture to us. It's the constitution of the kingdom. You could say, like, America has a constitution. God's kingdom has a constitution. We've got some screen constitution stuff happening. Um, so... We who pledge our allegiance, we pledge our allegiance not just to a flag, right, or a country, or a political figure, but the church all over the world pledges allegiance, above all, to the risen king and his kingdom, and we have this constitution that governs our shared life together called the Sermon on the Mount. Scott McKnight talks about the sermon this way. This is what Jesus is doing. The sermon is saying, Jesus is king, and this is how the king's people live in the king's kingdom. And so what the sermon does, what the Sermon on the Mount does is what the whole Bible is doing. And that's to show us how to be fully human. <laughs> no one knows how to be human better than Jesus did and does. And so we receive Jesus' teachings as not just, not just God in some ambiguous way like Jesus is God, but he's also the teacher from God. He's both. And so this is Jesus teaching us how to be fully human, and this is why we are coming to the end of the series on this message. Because the whole Bible is teaching us the same message, how to be fully human in relationship to God and one another, how to thrive in his kingdom. So, uh, part one, last week, how many of you remember the, the, which psalm we looked at last week? I see, yes, good, Allah on the back. He's holding up a number one. We looked at Psalm 1, that's right. Uh, so we look at Psalm 1. Does anyone remember the first word of Psalm 1? Blessed, excellent. Last question for now. Does anyone remember what the word blessed means in Psalm 1, the way we defined it last week? 
Killing it. Yes, blessed. There's two words for blessed in the, in the Old Testament. One that means I invoke blessing on you. I pray goodwill upon you, meaning you don't have it. I hope you do. Next. But this one means you've got it already. You're killing it. You're blessed. Uh, and someone, I think Paolo, uh, he recommended I say, uh, last week it was like killing it. He's like, there's a better word for it. Slay. <laughs> so, so slay, king, is literally what the psalm is saying. Like, like, it's looking, you know what the psalm is doing? Do you want to know who's really crushing it? Do you want to know who's really killing it at life? It's a person who's actively avoiding sinful patterns and delighting in the scriptures so much that they're literally chanting them because that makes them become like a fruitful tree. At the right time, you bear fruit, and then in the wintertime, you don't die. Contentment, killing it. Slang, blessed, that's the word. So get, get 2023 slang in your head and, and you'll really feel what's going on here. And so now today in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes that same word, killing it, and he starts his sermon with it. That's pretty audacious, isn't it? He's like, yeah, the way the Psalms start, it's the way I'm gonna start because I'm basically the Lord of the Psalms. So, so he says blessed and it's the Greek word makarios. I don't do like ancient dead languages on Sundays anymore unless it really matters. I think this, this is helpful. So makarios is a direct translation from the Hebrew ashrei, which means crushing it. You're living the good life right now. How good is life for you? You're killing it. This is what Jesus is saying. And so Jesus is pronouncing, it's basically congratulations. Congratulations, look at you, congratulations. This is what Jesus is saying. Normally, we congratulate people for something good, right? Like you have a new baby, you get engaged, you buy a home, you accept, you accept it into that college or whatever, and we're like, Makarios, you're killing, good job, you made it. And so Jesus starts his famous sermon with Makarios. But, but then what follows is a list of eight or nine types of people, and it's a very bizarre list. It is not who you'd expect to congratulate. You don't say congratulations for this stuff. Um, it's the poor in spirit. It's those who are mourning, grieving. It's the meek, people that are starving for righteousness. It's people that are peacemakers. And it ends with the persecuted. Congratulations, you're persecuted. This, that doesn't seem right. If you're new to Jesus here, you might be thinking, how in the world are those considered killing it? You're killing it at life. Congratulations, you're poor and suffering. Seriously? First, here's what's going on. Let's talk about what's, what Jesus is not listing. This list is not, the Beatitudes are not just a list of good qualities to pursue. That's not what this list is. Actually, this is a popular misreading of the Beatitudes where we just read it as a list of good things to go do. For example, in this misreading, the poor in spirit become people who really know how bad they need God, so they're so dependent on God, so they're poor in spirit. You just feel how bad you need God. And then the second one, those who mourn become, oh, they're actually those who mourn over their sin. They mourn over how bad they are. And then, and then the meek, the third one, meek, we translate to, well, that means 
power under control, meaning not, they're not weak. They're, they can't be just weak because Americans don't like weakness. So instead, we read meek like, well, we have the power to kill you, but we graciously don't, so we're meek, you know. That's how we read meek, power under control. Or those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, we just, we just kind of make it uh, uh, ambiguous and say that's just generally people who ache for God. We just, want, we just want God in some general way. And that makes me hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And listen, I want to say there's truth to all of those generally speaking, but specifically here in the Beatitudes, Jesus doesn't actually say any of that. He just said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Tim Mackey, Bible Project founder, he gives a helpful translation of the, of the Beatitudes. We're going to look at them today. Here's the first one. How good is life for the powerless? Wait a minute, Evan. Jesus didn't say powerless. He said poor in spirit. Isn't Tim taking too much liberty or adding his own layer of meaning? This actually feels like it could get political, Evan. I don't know about that. Isn't Tim just kind of taking too much liberty? No, I don't think he is. I think this is right on. Throughout Jesus' Bible, again, the Old Testament, over and over, we come across the person who is crushed in spirit or, or crushed in heart or poor of spirit. And it's always this person, when you read it, it's always a person who has nothing to offer anyone. It's not just someone who's just like, I just need God so much. I'm so holy and I know how much I need God. No, it's like someone who literally has nothing to offer his neighbor or her neighbor, or God. Here's Dallas Willard on poor in spirit. In Jesus' day, people who were poor in spirit were considered spiritual zeros, those who have absolutely nothing to offer, nothing material, nothing spiritual. And how good is life for the spiritual zeros? The bankrupt, literally bankrupt. Don't, don't make that a spiritual metaphor, but the bankrupt. The deprived and deficient now the spiritual beggars, those without a wisp of religion, when the kingdom of heaven comes on them, how good is life? So I think by poor, Jesus just means poor. He means the powerless. Now listen, Jesus is not saying that poverty itself is a great thing at all. Jesus is not a fan of the growing gap between the rich and the poor. Jesus is not a fan of global debt or corporate greed or any of that. And then the second beatitude is the same, those who mourn, those who are grieving. Jesus doesn't say, he doesn't say, blessed are those who, who know how sinful they are and it makes them weep. He doesn't say, blessed are those who mourn over their sin. I heard that teaching a lot growing up. He just doesn't say that. He just says, those who mourn. Blessed are those who are grieving. Is anybody grieving this week? As we prepare to step into Thanksgiving and Christmas season, is anyone grieving? Maybe it's a painful relationship or your failing health, a death in the family. Just in the last week, there's been a tragic death of a, a sibling of someone in our church, one of our community leaders, their sibling, absolutely unspeakable pain and suffering in their family right now, and they're out of state grieving that. A divorce, grieving a suffering daughter, maybe you're grieving a suffering son, or a dream you had that didn't pan out. Like, is anybody, is anybody grieving today? Maybe you're grieving the overwhelming global suffering and the war and the division in the church here over things that feel so far beyond our control. 
Have you ever seen that bumper sticker, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention, you know? I think Jesus might change that to, if you're not grieving, you're not paying attention. That's his heart here. Is anyone grieving today? Jesus would say to you, how good is life for you? Whoa. That seems almost insensitive. That's disruptive. I'm grieving right now. Jesus says, how good is life for you? If you feel disrupted and inspired at the same time, that's good. You're letting the Bible read you. This is what letting the Bible read us does. We start, we just start to see what Jesus sees. Next, Jesus gets to meek. Blessed are the meek. And remember, meek doesn't mean, I have tons of power. I could kill you, but I'm so self-controlled that I don't. Doesn't mean that. In fact, a better translation for us would be, how good is life for the unimportant? Those who society sees as less than. People who culture doesn't look to for influence. Remember, remember who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to people, Jewish, ancient Israelites, who are under the boot of Rome, occupied in the, Gal- in the Galilee sticks, very patriotic, but occupied by Rome. These are peasants, these are farmers, they're in debt, they're paying taxes at rates over 70%, historians say. And Jesus isn't saying being powerless and oppressed is a good thing by itself. Not at all. Jesus is not a fan of marginalization or oppression of people or groups based on race, religion, gender, sexuality, class, or anything. Jesus is not saying it's a good thing to be kicked to the curb at all. So now here they are, the first three of the nine bless, blesseds. First three. They're grouped in groups of three. So there's three groups. Here's the first group. How good is life for the powerless, the grievers, the unimportant if you're paying attention right now, you're like, those are horrible things. Yes, that's right. Big bummers. So then, wait a minute. Why does Jesus say they're killing it at life? The answer is in the because. Always look at the because. Here's the rest of the lines. How good is life for the powerless? Because the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. How? How good is life for those who grieve? Because they're going to be comforted. Or the unimportant, they're going to get the land. The land land they're standing on is more and more belonging to them. So that because is everything. How does that work? How does that work? The powerless, the grieving, those that society calls unimportant, you're actually the one who's crushing it because the king of heaven has come to you. The king of heaven has come to you. The kingdom of God in person is coming to you, giving you this message. and This comforter is entering your grief. The Lord of the land is actually in the process of giving his land to you. Here's what you have to, all you have to do is show up for the king. Just acknowledge Jesus in this moment. And, and what we see from Jesus is, the, is this idea that things are more than they seem. So it's the same message from last year's Revelation series. You remember, like the whole book of Revelation, all these images and crazy visions, dragons coming out of the sea, these crazy pictures. It's all to wake up John so he can send a message to the church that's going through hell from Roman occupation and violence and persecution to say, hey, things are more than they seem. 
Jesus is doing the same thing here. The moment you realize who it is that's speaking to you, Jesus is in the room. Through the bread and cup, he's coming to you. If you're gonna be baptized today, Jesus is embracing you. If you're hearing the preaching of the word right now, praying with the saints, singing songs about who God is, if in that moment, the moment you realize who it is that's speaking to you, that's the moment you realize that the tables of the universe have actually turned in your favor. The powerful, the partiers, the rich are actually at the bottom of things. And you who are in need and grieving and unimportant are actually killing it at the top because you recognize that the kingdom of heaven is in your midst and his name is Jesus. You recognize that. Now you're letting the Bible read you. That's what we're doing right now. We're letting the Bible read us. And when we do that, you know what we find? We begin to believe now what will always be true in the future. This is, that's the effect of letting the scriptures read you. You start to believe now what is actually true and will remain true against all the other lies. That's what's happening to you. Which brings us to the second group of Beatitudes. Here's the next three. How good is life for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who show mercy, and the pure in heart. Now, look at those. You might be like, well, these are good. Yeah, they're, they're righteousness, pure heart. They, they, those got to be good, right? You think they're good? Not a trick question. They're totally great. They're, 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 the first three were bummers. The second three are awesome. But we, but we run into problems still. We run into a problem with the first one. What does it practically mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Because righteousness is one of those sort of churchy words that like feels nice, righteousness. But when you like start to ask questions, it floats away. It's like, oh, it's just a churchy word. Like righteousness ends up meaning, for me growing up, righteousness means I'm just holy and being a good person. I'm living righteous. Um, or maybe you read hunger, thirst for righteousness in sort of like a modern worship CCM kind of way. And you're like, I hunger for you, God, like a deer longs for the water, my soul longs, which is great. But notice Jesus doesn't say those who hunger and thirst for God. He says for righteousness. So what does it mean to be hungry for it? Well, in, in Jesus' Jewish vocabulary in the Old Testament, righteousness always means right relationships with God and people and your own self and the creation you live in. I love what uh, Pastor Greg Pikin did a couple, last, actually last Sunday, yeah. Uh, he did a, a house of learning on mental health and faith and it's all about righteousness. It's all about being rightly related to God, other self and creation. And this is hungering and thirsting for righteousness. So, so when you read how good is life for those who are hungry for righteousness? It means something like this. This is those who don't have right relationships. They don't have right relationships with God, others, self, or creation, but my goodness, they crave it. Things are not the way they should be, and I'm longing for them to be. Tim Mackey translates it this way. How good is life? for those who hunger and thirst for right relationships. Just drop in that, right relationship. Whenever you see righteousness, just drop in right relationships and you get what the Bible's shooting for. So this is people who are a mess. Anyone, 
Like, or, okay, just me, my hand went up, I'm feeling very insecure. Uh, I need to be rightly related right now. Uh, so, no, but this is people, all of us, we don't have it all together, but we're longing for a change. We want integration. Imagine if all your relationships with your own body, with your, all your family, all your friends, with God, no hiddenness in any of those things, but because we live in this world, there's hiddenness and there's, and then with creation, we think about all that's going on in creation, like, gosh, I just want to contribute well. And we're like, man, I hunger for right relationships. This is the guy I met when we first planted Park Hill. He got kicked out of his fourth rehab attempt. He hadn't seen his son in years. And I sat down with him, asked, you sit down with him. You ask him, and honest to God, he so badly just wants to get his life together and to get his family back. But he just can't turn the corner. He even told me he'd love to teach the Bible someday. But it's like sobriety is at the top of Mount Everest. He wants it so bad, he just can't. I haven't seen him at church in five years. I don't know what happened to him, but I know what Jesus would speak over him right now. How good is life for you who hunger and thirst for right relationships? This is a genuine desire to do right by someone. I like that phrase, I just want to do right by you. I really do. I just want to do right by God, and I want to do right by my wife, my kids. It's like, God, I just want to live in a way where I'm doing right by you and my neighbor and my own soul. This kind, this kind of person I long to be, and it pains me that I'm not there yet. And right there, right in that moment of pain, God's like, good life. You're believing now what will always be true, and you're longing for it. You're seeking integration. You're facing Jesus. And, and you can see how that blessed beatitude, hungering and thirsting, you see how that leads to the next two. Because right here, out of my desire to do right by you, I'm going to show you mercy. And then as I keep practicing mercy and forgiveness, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to glimpse the holy grail of godliness. I'll actually experience a pure heart. <laughs> Can you imagine a pure heart? Like, no mixed motives. Gosh, you guys, this was really the ultimate desire of God's people in the Psalms. Check out, look at this Psalm 24. It says, the earth is the Lord's, everything in it, the world and all who live in it. It's like, I love creation. I want to do right by creation. I want to treat it right. It's God's. For he founded on the seas, established on the waters. So here's the question. Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Here he is. Here she is. It's the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who doesn't trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord. There's that word. And vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. So, so can I ask you, Park Hill, are any of you desiring to do right by God? And to do right by other people, just do right by your neighbor. Then here's what you, you want to know what you most deeply desire? Clean hands. A pure heart. And when we, when we wake up to this, we're letting the text read us right now. It's exposing what you really want. Your deep desires are exposed. 
If you're a child of God, your deepest desire is to do right by God. It's just a fact. It's a fact of being born again. If you have the Holy Spirit in you as a believer, you have a new heart that wants to do right by God and do right by others. The problem is these temporary lies, right, that we believe from past narratives, cultural narratives, lies spoken to us by the enemy that dupe us to think for a moment that we don't want to do right, that we want to cheat, that we want to lie, that we want to steal people's joy or whatever it is. Those are the momentary desires that do not define your core anymore as a child of God. As a child of God, you have a new heart with the deepest desire being to do right by God. That's just who you are. Don't believe the lie that you are at the core this horribly messed up person who doesn't want to do right by God and who is messed up and wants to mess up other people's lives. Those are lies for the child of God. You have a new heart. Even though the momentary narratives that trick you and lie to you, even though those feel strong at times, the truth is you desire a pure heart. You, just, you desire a pure heart. And you're seeing Jesus. You want to be near God. I love the word vindicated. You want to be vindicated by God. You want to wake up in God's presence and be vindicated to realize, oh my gosh, all the suffering, all the grief, all the saying no to my momentary desires and the lies of culture and staying faithful to God, it really was all worth it. I'm vindicated. I'm standing on the mountain with God. It's all true. You guys, it is really, I am believing now what will always be true about me. That is the blessed good life. Right now, you believe what will always be true. How good is life for you? If right now you live that way, and you're like, I really am the one killing it at life. I really am blessed. No wonder Jesus was right. And here's the becauses. How good is life for those who hunger and thirst for right relationships? Because they're going to have them. And you can have more and more today. Blessed are those who show mercy because you are shown mercy. The king is in the room with you. And blessed are those who are pure in heart because they will see God. The deepest desire you have is to see God. It's just true about you. Blessed are you for believing that. Blessed are you for believing the truest thing about you. You are being satisfied. You have received mercy because you've seen the God revealed in Jesus. And one day you will see Jesus fully and right now you realize nothing matters more than that. How good is life for the daughter or son who believes that there's nothing that matters more than to fully see Jesus? How good is life for you? But here we just finished the second group of Beatitudes. That's one through six. The last three are a doozy, as they say. So here's Tim Mackey's translation. How good is life for the peacemakers, for those who've been persecuted for the sake of doing what is right? That's righteousness. Oh, look, persecution gets a double dip. That's how, that's how blessed the persecuted are. For you, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute and spread evil lies against you on account of me. Celebrate and shout for joy. Yikes. So, not easy. We've arrived at the conflict zone. 
We've arrived at what you know, Dr. Bashir calls the war zone, where the rubber meets the road. Because if, if you ever start doing right by everyone, have you ever tried that? I'm just gonna do right by everyone. New Year's resolution or something. You're like, I'm just gonna be a really great guy or girl. I'm just gonna do right. Uh, it doesn't take much long until you find yourself offending someone. <laughs> the moment you really start doing right to everyone, you're going to offend someone. Uh, because not everyone has the same values, right? And so then, boom, what are you doing next? You've offended someone, what are you doing next? The hard work of peacemaking. This is mediation work, this is hard, peacemaking. And let's not confuse peacemaking with peacekeeping, right? Peacekeeping passively avoids, functions from weakness, peacemaking boldly engages and functions from strength. Peacekeepers are fine with a false peace. Just like, just keep the surface chill. Let's just not rock the surface. But peacemakers plunge into the water to uncover the source of the problem, misunderstanding, and find true peace. And Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Right? And remember who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to occupied Jewish nationalists. Rome is violently oppressing them. The Jews don't have a privilege of saying, hey, let's all just stop fighting. Let's just stop fighting. They don't have the privilege of saying that. So what Jesus says, you know what he, he says? How good is life for those who get in there and actually love and make peace? What the Jews are hearing, wait a minute, the, Jesus is saying the good life is to respond lovingly to our violent oppressors? Not a popular take, okay? This is not the favorite topic at the Thanksgiving table this month, you know, person suggesting actual peacemaking. Because these Jewish nationalists, they wanted their enemies out of the land, and Jesus was telling them to love their enemies in the land while they're there. And they're like, Jesus, I don't want to love my enemy. I want justice and independence for my family. And Jesus says to them, how good is life for the peacemakers? Because they're seen as God's kids. The person who lays down their own rights for the sake of radical, nonsensical forgiveness, that's the person who's most like their father in heaven. Living the life of heaven on earth, crushing it. Just crushing life. Again, how good is life for the person who believes now what will always be true? Do you believe now what will always be the truth? This is, what? So can I ask you, just in the room, blessed are the peacemakers, not peacekeepers, peacemakers, what happens to you when you let that verse read you? Are, are we really open to letting that verse read us? Let me ask this way. Maybe where where have you normalized unforgiveness? Or where have you settled for the false peace of avoidance when it's really time to have that conversation in a healthy way in the name of Jesus, true peace with Jesus in the middle of it? Because when you're after that kind of peace, Jesus says, you're crushing life. You're telling the truth, and you're not just doing it to be a jerk. <laughs> you're actually doing it because of me. You're killing it. 
but it's bound to get you in trouble. Peacemaking will get you in trouble temporarily, which is why Jesus' last two Beatitudes are all about persecution, right? Again, it's the only, this is the only one that gets two blesseds. Persecution gets two. Uh, when you choose the way of impossible forgiveness, just expect persecution. Here's the grand finale of Jesus' list, with the becauses. How good is life for the peacemakers because they're God's kids. They'll be called God. Oh, that's God's kid. And then, bless, how good is life for those who've been persecuted for the sake of really going for right relationships? Like really making all your relationships right? Not just a false right, like a true right? You've been persecuted for that? How good is life for you because the kingdom belongs to you, people who do that? And then finally, how good is life for you and people insult you, persecute, spread lies because of Jesus? celebrate, shout for joy, two, two becauses as well, two becauses. Why? Why is this the good life, this persecution? Because your reward in heaven is great and because you're in great company. So the whole point of the Beatitudes is also the whole point of Scripture. It's to let the Scriptures and Jesus' teachings read us to get the whole family of God to see what's really happening in life, what's really going on, what's really true behind this thing called reality. Things are more than they seem. So question, according to the systems of the world, who runs the world? It's not the unimportant, right? It's not unimportant. The meek do not get the, the, the land. No, it's usually the really smart narcissists that run the world, right? I mean, look at Washington, D.C. This is not to make a partisan statement, but when you think of any politician on any side, I doubt the first quality that comes to mind is meek. It's, it's rich, it's powerful, educated, friends in high places. Those are the people that inherit the land, not the unimportant, not the disempowered ones. So another question. According to the systems of the world, do the merciful always get mercy back? No, of course not. In over 60 countries today, people who live the way of Jesus are suffering severe persecution right now. According to the 2023 Church in Need report, in as many as 40 countries since just 2021, in the last two years, in 40 countries, our brothers and sisters in Christ have been killed or abducted for the faith. 63% of the world's population, that's 5 billion humans right now, live in countries with serious to very serious Violations of religious freedom, according to churchinneed.org. So, so this is through the lens of the world system, through the lens of the way things work. The merciful don't always receive mercy, not at all. In fact, the merciful often become the doormat for the unforgiving, right? It's true. The merciful become a doormat. Don't seek mercy. Don't apologize. You've got to cover your backside. Your apology might be used against you. That's the way of the world. The peacemaker, the peacemaker often gets hit by crossfire in mediation. That's how things work. But now the king of God's kingdom is standing on a mountain and joyfully speaking over us, things are more than they seem. He's pulling the curtain back, you guys. The reality of God's kingdom redefines what the good life is and who's actually living it. So if you feel 
Like it's rubbing you the wrong way and inspiring you at the same time. You're reading it right because it's reading you. The Bible both inspires and disturbs, just like Jesus' Beatitudes. The whole Bible is designed to inspire and disturb you. It disturbed Jesus' first hearers too. What I'm about to show you, I'm not making this up. Okay, I'm not making this up. I'm about to show you a list of blessings from 100 years before Jesus that define the good life. This is like the People magazine of ancient Israel. This was the good life according to Israel culture. Uh, this is People magazine at Jesus' day. It's, it's, it's an excerpt from Sirach, Sirach, a guy who wrote part of the Deuterocanon, which is in the Catholic Bible. It's from 100 years before Jesus. And he says this. Uh, okay, Ready? I can think of nine whom I would call blessed, and a tenth my tongue proclaims. Here's the first, a man, awesome. A man, <laughs> but what, a man who can rejoice in his children. Okay, kids are cool. A man who lives to see the downfall of his foes. Wow. Uh, happy the man who lives with a sensible wife. Uh, yeah, and the one, and the one who does not plow with ox and ass together, meaning he doesn't, he doesn't run his business s- stupid. He's a smart, shrewd businessman who knows how to get stuff done. And then uh, happy is the one who does not sin with the tongue. That's a good idea. Don't do that. And the one who has not served an inferior. Yikes. Uh, happy is the one who finds a friend. That's nice. And the one who speaks to attentive listeners, who has a group of people listening to you talk. That's awesome. A- and also, interesting that that's on the list. And if how great is the one who finds wisdom, but none is superior to the one who fears the Lord. See, he wrapped it up kind of holy. That's cool. So, you guys, this is not exactly Jesus' list, is it? There's some nice ideas there. There's also some really anti-Jesus stuff, right? So when Jesus comes in hot with his own definition of the good life, it's designed to both inspire and disturb. Just like if you pick up a People magazine, you'll be like, oh, there's some good advice. Oh, whoa, that's not actually Jesus. You're supposed to feel, and when Jesus comes in, if you've been absorbing Sirach, or you've been absorbing people, you, and, and you're shaped more by those, you should actually feel those pieces of you that are less like Jesus disturbed. Understand, this is the Holy Spirit of God. This is letting the Bible read you. So you know what this means? If we typically feel comfortable with everything Jesus says, chances are we're either not paying attention to Jesus or we've made a false Jesus in our own image. So here's, here's how this works with the Beatitudes. If you're reading the Beatitudes and maybe you're a person of power and means, I'd venture to say that's, compared to the rest of the world, San Diego would be power and means. So we read, and we have power and we have means, we should be wondering, huh, wait, Jesus blesses the powerless first and foremost. And that should just pique your interest and make you ask why and, and then draw your attention to the poor in love, right? And maybe that inspires you, maybe it disrupts you. If your attention hasn't been drawn to the poor, that should disrupt you. Or maybe you're grieving right now, you're grieving loss and you read this, how good is life for those who grieve? And you're like, what do you mean? How is that not insensitive to my pain? 
And then you make a move. You make a move to keep trusting and seeking because you know that Jesus is trustworthy, right? And the list goes on like that. The list goes on. And then if you somehow manage to get to feel comfortable with one through five, for sure you get to number for sure you get to number six, where, where Jesus talks about the pure in heart, because who on earth has a totally pure heart with no mixed motives? You're like, oh, disrupted and inspired. So that's the point. The Beatitudes, like all of the Bible, are designed to both inspire you toward God and disturb you in beautiful ways as you read and reread and trust and keep trusting. This is the Spirit's intent for you. It's the point of the whole Bible is to shape God's family more like Jesus and less like the systems of the world we live in. So just to bring this idea home, and we're gonna, there's someone here to be baptized today, which is cool. We're going to baptize her and anyone else who wants to step into reality according to Jesus. That's what you do. When you're baptized, you're stepping into reality. Uh, so just to bring this home, uh, my friend John Mark Comer, who will be here in January to speak, which is exciting, he wrote a creative adaptation. He wrote, he wrote a paraphrase of the Beatitudes. It's like back in 2017. It's a super loose paraphrase of Jesus' Beatitudes in American vernacular. It helps get at how inspiring and disturbing Jesus' list actually is. Here we go. You ready? Blessed are the down and out, the unemployed and the underemployed, those getting gentrified, those on the wrong side of globalization, those without a college degree or health insurance, and those who are spiritually simple, who really have very little to offer because they are in the kingdom of God. Blessed are the sad, the depressed, the grieving the death of a loved one, the failure of a marriage, another miscarriage, the pain of your genogram, the racism of our nation, because one day God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Blessed are the quiet, the shy, the socially awkward, the uncool, the badly dressed, the people with six followers on Instagram, because one day they will be free from the tyranny of what others think of them, and they will take up their role as a king or queen over God's world. Blessed are the messed up, those who just can't get it together, the addict, the mentally unstable, the overweight, those from an abusive home, for they will one day be so full of God's life that they won't know where to put it all. Blessed is the little guy, the people who get stomped on, passed over, and they don't fight violence with violence. One day, they'll get all that mercy back with interest. Blessed are those who want nothing to do with America's wars her violence in the name of democracy and freedom, but who know the true source of peace and prosperity isn't a gun or an army, and they are willing to suffer to bring a new world to bear. One day in the future, everybody will recognize that they are the most like God. And blessed are all the Christians in a post-Christian culture that is hostile to what they believe, even though they're made fun of, looked down on as stupid and mean and behind the times, they get to share in the cross-shaped life of Jesus and the kingdom of God. So that's not a translation. It's obviously a paraphrase that gets to the heart and gives us fresh eyes of what Jesus is doing and what the whole Bible is doing. Did you know the Bible is written by the underclass? You've heard the phrase, history is written by the winners, except for the Bible. The Bible was written by a nation of ex-slaves, you guys. This is the Holy Spirit at work. 
This is what we realize as we let the Bible read us. It humbles us. As we choose to trust the Bible as words of life from God. You know what you realize when you do that? When you trust the Bible, yeah, we have questions about how to interpret it and like weird texts. When you trust it, we realize what many people in the scriptures realize. When you let the Bible read you, you step into a family, uh, you step into a family tradition where you realize along with your whole family that there's a mysterious blessing buried under the ashes of suffering. This is what the Bibles want you to believe. There is a mysterious blessing buried under the ashes of your pain today. And the scriptures come to us and they're this invitation to taste the blessing God has for you in your pain. And, you, and do, you, do you wanna know who I really think gets this? I don't claim to get this myself. But do you know who really gets this? It's parents of special needs children. I'm gonna kinda anonymously call some of you out without naming you in this church. There's several of you here. Do you guys know anyone like that? They get what Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes. They get the blessing and the pain, which is the point of the Bible. The more I get to know parents of special needs children or parents who choose to follow Jesus into foster and orphan care, helping some of the most vulnerable people in the world heal from unspeakable trauma, the more I get to know these parents, there's just this beautiful and brutal honesty and there's doubt and grief for sure, but there's this brutal honesty as they come to a place where they really, all the way down, love that child. To the point where they can't imagine a world without their child exactly as they are. Right, am I right? Like they get to this point, it's like we are, how good is life? We're blessed, we're truly, this is the good life. And then the majority of us come around and go, oh, how could that be true? I wanna, can I pray for you? You must need some, they're like, yes, we have needs, but we also have everything we need. This is the good life. And don't hear me wrong, these parents acknowledge illnesses and are honest about the difficulties, but at the same time, they come to celebrate everything about that child. I've seen it over and over in six years now of church planting and then youth ministry before that. And what happens is the, the parents are either wrecked by their experience or they're transformed into the most incredible human beings you'll ever have the honor of knowing. I think this is the heart of Jesus and his kingdom and the Beatitudes and what the whole God-breathed scriptures are all about. One day, all the sad things will come untrue. And right now, the blessed ones, truly blessed ones, are the ones who believe now what will always be true. No more muscular dystrophy. There will be no more cerebral palsy or divorce or executions or being born into poverty. It'll be just one family, big, beautiful, diversely embodied bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, 
forgiven and rescued by the lamb who was slain and all of us physically resurrected into the new heavens and new earth where God wipes away every tear as we celebrate his victory. And until then, those who receive his message and let his message read them, the Holy Spirit leads them to see Jesus clearly and they realize, I'm the one who's truly crushing it. (laughs) Truly. And at that moment, you become part of the Beatitudes toward the poor. Do you realize how insensitive it is to read, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, and not have a plan or heart for the poor? You're immediately meant to be critiqued if the circle isn't going full circle in your life. This is the Bible reading you and then compelling you. I am the blessed one. Oh my gosh, I'm the presence of Jesus blessing them now. Guys, this is who we are. As we move toward the people the world considers unimportant and become the presence of God in their life. So, so whoever wants to be baptized and join the family of unimportant ones for a season, because we actually inherit the earth, the waters of baptism are open. Jesus has made a way for you to step into reality as it is, not according to the spin of society, but you can exit the lies and the spin of society through the waters of baptism where you die to it all with Christ, and you come up out of the risen, out of the water, like the risen Christ did, you come up out of the tomb, the tomb that was society's spin and lies, and you come up into the truest thing about you, which is you were created for a relationship with the triune God, the same God the whole Bible's always been about, and you step into his family that started in the Bible and then lived past it and reads it with us. So do you want to be part of this family? Do you want to be blessed? Do you want to be truly crushing it? Stepping into the person of Christ is through the waters of baptism. You're invited. I'm going to invite you forward uh, right now, and I'm going to sing a song, and then Matt Persley is going to be at the waters, I think. Right? Yeah, yeah. Matt Persley, uh, executive pastor, he'll be up by the steps. If you've never been baptized, then you've never done what Christians do when they say yes to the kingdom. We invite you to do so. I know you didn't plan on it, maybe. I know uh, Chloe did. (laughs) She's rad. But uh, I just called her out. But uh, I know the rest of you didn't plan on it because you didn't send a little note ahead of time. Uh, But this is your day as well. This is an invitation for you to step into reality where Christ is king and the unimportant inherit the earth. And those who are stepped on and hurt for seeking right relationships inherit the kingdom. Uh, and you receive forgiveness and mercy. So Holy Spirit, would you come upon this church? Would you come upon these people? And I pray that you would bring people into your kingdom today. They'd say yes to the open door of Jesus. Holy Spirit, speak now to every heart and every mind as we seek to follow you into life that is truly life, in Jesus' name. So feel free to stand, church, We're going to have 30 seconds of silence just to be still. Maybe you've been baptized. You don't need to be baptized again. You get to come to the table in a moment. That's your your deal. If baptism is the wedding, communion is a weekly renewal of vows.
Every single week, you say yes to the one who loves your soul, rescued you forever. But maybe you want prayer. There's something that's stirred in your heart that you're having trouble believing. You'd love to see more trust bloom in your life. Come forward. Let's pray for you. We'd love to pray for you. You don't have to have a request. Just say, pray for me. I just want prayer. And let the Holy Spirit work. So let's wait for 30 seconds. And then if you want to be baptized, come forward to the tank. If you want prayer, come forward to the people praying. Holy Spirit, come speak to our hearts in the silence now.